At one time, Google had the motto, don't be evil, as part of its code of conduct. But now, they don't. Why is that? Did Google become an evil corporation themselves? We explored this in the first of the What Happened To series, a series where I explore past companies, technologies, and techie ideologies that were once around but didn't make it to today. Own Joey's Totally Tech. Google's corporate code of conduct included the phrase, don't be evil, ever since 2000. And in 2015's reorganization under the new parent company, Alphabet, they assumed a modified version saying, do the right thing. But all the while, they retained the original don't be evil language until sometime in 2018. The phrase, don't be evil, was so much a part of Google's culture that it was used for things like the Wi-Fi passwords on the shuttles that Google uses to transport its employees to its Mountain View headquarters. The problem, however, is Google had been doing things that people might consider evil for some time, such as collecting data and spying on people, from its search engine that initially made them popular, to its Chrome web browser, to its Chrome OS and Android operating systems. Now, one thing I'm not going to do is go the conspiracy theorist route and tie them into the Illuminati, but I want us to think about where the phrase came from and why it was ultimately dropped. And also, how safe do you feel using Google's products anyway? And this is coming from someone that uses Google Chrome, Gmail, and Google Docs. In fact, I used Google Docs to write this script for this show. Google likely could find out about this if they really wanted to. This is even on Google Podcast. And I'm not worried about that. So that should show you I'm not just coming from a necessarily paranoid mindset. But this is something we all need to think about. The motto, don't be evil, was first suggested either by Google's employee and creator of Gmail, Paul Boucher, at a meeting about corporate values in 2000 or 2001, or by Google engineer Amit Patel in 1999, depending on whose account you go by. Boucher said he, quote, wanted something that, once you put it in there, would be hard to take out. End quote, and added that it was, quote, also a bit of a jab at the lot of the other companies, especially our competitors, who at the time, in our opinion, were kind of exploiting the users to some extent, end quote. The phrase wasn't included in Google's official corporate policy, but it was included in the prospectus of Google's 2004 IPO in a letter from Google's founders now known as the Don't Be Evil Manifesto. Quote, Don't be evil. We believe strongly in the long term. 
we will be better served as shareholders and in all other ways by a company that does good things for the world, even if we forego some of the short-term gains." End quote. Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin argued that the don't be evil culture was about prohibiting conflicts of interest and requiring objectivity and an absence of bias. Quote, Google users trust our systems to help them with important decisions, medical, financial, and many others. Our search results are the best we know how to produce. They are unbiased and objective, and we do not accept payment for them or for the inclusion of more frequent updating. We also display advertising, which we work hard to make relevant, and we label it clearly. This is similar to a well-run newspaper, where the advertisements are clear and the articles are not influenced by the advertiser's payments. We believe it is important for everyone to have access to the best information and research, not only to the information people pay you to see." End quote. Others felt the phrase was linked to the company's separation of search results from advertising, but it was also observed that doing this was required by law, thus not anything remarkable or good. In 2013, Eric Schmidt was interviewed by NPR and revealed he, quote, thought this was the stupidest rule ever, end quote. That was until a meeting where an engineer referred to the motto when expressing concerns about a planned advertising product, which was canceled. Many journalists have questioned what Google considered evil. And this may be the problem. What is evil? In 2012, Google began tracking users across all of their services. This resulted in a public backlash to the motto and people felt Google had broken their promise to not be evil. Of course, some would argue this isn't necessarily evil, but just part of modern business. Users agree to the terms and conditions, whether it be Google or Facebook or whatever site they're on, and they're tracked, and in many cases, money is made for the company as a result. As we know, however, most people don't read the terms and conditions. We could argue that Google is evil for exploiting this trait in humans. Or we could also admit we only have ourselves to blame for not paying attention when we agree to the terms and conditions. So is it Google being evil? Or is it just our own stupidity? But then, we've also had an increased reliance on Google's products over the years. Many of us use Gmail, and Google Docs has become the preferred way to do office work or homework for many. And sharing documents with Google Docs is so easy, as well as the collaborative editing. It's almost an essential service for many of us now. And your Android phone is able to track you wherever you are via GPS. If you've had your phone's GPS on, Google knows where you've been, and they use that data to make recommendations for other places to go to, and it's really quite scary to many. It seems only an evil genius could come up with something like this. 
but then for others, this is quite a convenience. Google knows what I like and makes suggestions about new businesses to check out or gets me to go to the same business and lets me know about some new deal they have going on. Is that evil? A lot of it depends on what your opinion of evil is, much like our religious and political views. We all have them. They all vary. And we're all going to be arguing over them until the end of time, so it seems. So, is Google evil? I don't think Google is intentionally trying to be evil. They're just trying to be a business. However, they're falling into what I feel is an evil trap of capitalism and trying to please their shareholders while not addressing the concerns of the user's privacy. But this is really nothing unique. Many big corporations are taking advantage of both customers and workers. It's how to succeed at the capitalist system, unfortunately. And that's why I think they had to take the don't be evil out. They knew that many would see what the company was doing in certain aspects as evil. I think the idea of the socially responsible corporation is mostly a myth. I say mostly as I know there are some exceptions to every rule, but I think Google realized they couldn't be an exception to that rule here. And I think this is an unfortunate thing about the tech business. Oftentimes, ethics gets thrown out the window. When I was in Boy Scouts, my scoutmaster, the late Carl McLawhorn, was the owner and president of a small tech business called Forvis. And it remained small. He admitted they could have been larger, but he wasn't willing to do some of the unethical things that big tech players like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs would do. And I don't think it was ever Carl's goal to become as big as them. Of course, they needed to make money, but I think Carl just loved what he did. And it wasn't about the money. And that's the thing about big corporations. It's not about the love of tech necessarily, but a love of money. And I'm not discrediting anything Google has done. They've created some very impressive products, many of which I use. But if one of their goals was to be as big as they are today, don't be evil should not have been in their code of conduct to begin with. Because I just don't think any company gets that big in today's world by not doing something that will seem unethical. I'm not saying that's how things should be. I'm just saying that's how things are. So I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening. I'd just like to go over some of the stats and give you an update on how this podcast is doing. So Anchor estimates that we have 22 listeners to this podcast, which I think for a small podcast, it's fine. We haven't been around very long. Uh, let's see if I scroll down a bit. I see that our top episode is still the introductory episode, which I don't even consider an official episode. It's had 76 plays, 
and then the rise and fall of Craigslist, one of the first real episodes, has done very well at 70 plays. I see that uh, Linux-based operating systems and open source software, they're quite popular on here at uh, 45 plays for open source software and 45 plays for Linux-based operating systems. A lot of you are interested in that. Uh, and they stayed the same, most of them. I see like a gradual downward trend as we get uh, to the newer episodes. And I assume that's because a lot of you are listening to the older episodes first, and then you just proceed on through each episode. That just seemed to be the trend for a while. I do not see the last few episodes on this bar graph. The last one I see is YouTube versus library. That has 25 plays, which I think uh, for right now it's good. Where our listeners are listening from, this is interesting. 86% of you are from France, apparently, which I don't think is accurate. If you're listening from France, leave a message on the Anchor app. I'd love to hear from you and why you're listening to an English language podcast. But I think you're probably listening on a VPN. Of course, 11% are in the United States, 1% in Ireland, less than 1% in India, and less than 1% in Germany. Of the United States, which I think is probably our more accurate number here, 60% in my home state of North Carolina, 28% in South Carolina, and we've got 3% in Oregon, 3% in Washington, 3% in Florida. Thank you all for listening. Scrolling down, we've got uh, 44% male listeners, not specified for 44% of the listeners, 13% female listeners. We don't have any non-binary listeners, apparently. And then the age, we have, uh, let's see, we've got 6%, 23 to 27-year-olds, 44%, 28 to 34-year-olds, and 44%, 35 to 44 year olds and then i have also looked at the library stats i'm going to pull them up right here right now the creator analytics as you may or may not know we upload the episodes to library as well though it's uploaded later than it is to anchor because uh anchor is the main podcasting hosting platform that we use So, if I look at this, library shows me that the most viewed content is open source software from March 30th, 2020. That's really interesting. So, it seems like a lot of you are interested in Linux and open source software. So, that's probably going to influence some of the decision for the content moving forward. If that's what you want to hear, let me know in the Anchor app on the voice messaging feature of it or in Facebook Messenger. If you want to hear something else as far as tech goes, also let me know either way. Thank you for listening. Don't forget you can support the podcast on Anchor at 99 cents per month, 4.99 per month, or 9.99 per month. And I assume it will give me your name if you decide to become a supporter. If you are, any of the $9.99 a month supporters will be considered executive producers and listed in the credits at the end of the podcast episodes. 
Again, thank you for listening. This has been the stats for the Joey's Totally Tech Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Joey, and I'm recording this for my iPhone 6S. Have you heard about the Anchor app yet? If not, let me explain. It's the easiest way to make a podcast. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. I'm recording from my phone right now. I normally use my professional microphone at home to record, but hey, I'm showing that you can do this on the phone too. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more platforms. You can make money from your podcast. There's no minimum listenership required. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the Anchor app in the Apple App Store or Android's Google Play Store today to get started. Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. So you all know COVID-19 has been wreaking havoc around the world, and it's easy to feel powerless. But there is something you can do. It's called Folding at Home. You can donate your PC's processing power to help fight infectious diseases such as COVID-19 by connecting up to their distributed supercomputer. You can use Windows, Mac, or Linux-based systems. You can download Folding at Home at foldingathome.org. Again, that's foldingathome.org. And we have a folding team set up as well. It's called Joey's Totally Folding. If you set up your computer for folding at home and want to join the team, go into Configure in the app, go to the Identity tab, and put in the team member number, 261660 and set up your name and passkey. And then you can start folding with Joey's Totally Folding on the Folding at Home app. And remember, stay safe out there, practice social distancing, and abide by your state or country's orders regarding COVID-19 for your own safety and the safety of others. We have quite a bit going on this week in the world of tech. AMD has backtracked and decided to support Zen 3 and Ryzen 4000 on the previous generation motherboards. Apple Glass details have been leaked. Facebook has announced Facebook Shops, as well as the ability for most of their workers to work from home. Google's and Apple's Exposure API is now available, The creators of Doom Eternal backtracked on anti-cheat, and graphing can help us go to space. All this and more, this is the news on Joey's Totally Tech. AMD changes their mind and will enable Zen 3 and Ryzen 4000 support on B450 and X470 motherboards. After criticism from fans and users, 
AMD has reversed its decision we mentioned last week here on the podcast that would have prevented Zen 3 and Ryzen 4000 support on the previous generation of motherboards. They will provide support through the optional Agiza code that they'll supply to the vendors. But some caveats do apply. The BIOS updates needed may not be available at the time of the CPU's launch. You still won't have PCIe 4.0 on the older motherboards. And there are a number of other details that are unclear. Microsoft has launched Windows Terminal and unveiled GPU support in Windows Subsystem for Linux. Windows Terminal, which has been available as a preview for Enterprise, has been released to the public. Windows Subsystem for Linux 2 is getting GPU support along with a simplified install experience. They even released a Windows Package Manager. DirectX support for WSL is also part of this. DirectX, however, only works in Windows Subsystem for Linux and not a regular Linux distribution. The GPU support will help Linux applications use parallel computation and will also be useful for training artificial intelligence and machine learning models. Apple Glass details have been leaked. They cost $499 and will work with prescriptions. Now take this with a grain of salt as we're in leaks and rumor territory here, but John Prosser, a prolific leaker, has given details about Apple's upcoming augmented reality glasses in a video and has revealed that they will be called Apple Glass. The glasses are supposed to cost $499 according to Prosser, and you can get a prescription pair too, but that will likely increase the cost. But if you want sunglasses, it's not believed that the sunglasses will be available at launch. LiDAR sensors are also built into the frame. The glasses will come with a stand for wireless charging, and they will have an interface called Starboard, according to Prosser, which will display information on both lenses and can be controlled in front of the device with gestures. Prosser believes that this is planned as a one more thing style announcement that Steve Jobs was known to do during his life and says a release date was being planned in either Q4 of 2020 or Q1 of 2021. But the coronavirus pandemic may have pushed the release back. Apple is believed to have told its engineers to prepare for a launch by 2022. Prosser is relatively new to Apple leaks, but he has an established track record with leaks in regards to other vendors. Mark Zuckerberg has announced Facebook Shops. The Zuck has announced a new e-commerce feature for businesses on the Facebook platform, which allows them to easily list their products on Facebook and Instagram. And planned for the future is the ability to sell through chat features on WhatsApp, Messenger, and Instagram Direct as well, and the ability to tag products during live streams. This announcement comes during a time where Facebook is ramping up its efforts to support small businesses during the pandemic. Facebook has announced they're making most of their jobs remote. This past week, Zuckerberg announced that most of the jobs will be able to be done remotely at Facebook, and those currently working there will be able to request a switch to remote work. The Zuck said, quote, we're going to be the most forward-leaning company on remote work at our scale. 
we need to do this in a way that's thoughtful and responsible. So we're going to do this in a measured way. But I think that it's possible over the next five to 10 years, maybe closer to 10 than five, but somewhere in that range, I think we could get to about half of the company working remotely permanently, end quote. This of course is due to the reality of COVID-19. Twitter's Jack Dorsey is giving Andrew Yang $5 million to build a case for universal basic income. The CEO of Twitter and mobile payment company Square is giving money to former presidential candidate Andrew Yang's group, Humanity Forward, to build the case for UBI. Dorsey told Yang on the Yang Speaks podcast that UBI was long overdue and, quote, the only way we can change policy is by experimenting and showing case studies of why this works, end quote. Yang plans to immediately distribute Dorsey's contribution in the form of small cash grants of $250 to nearly 20,000 people who have lost their jobs or taken an economic hit as a result of the pandemic. The group has already given $2 million in direct cash assistance to help communities in dealing with the pandemic. Apple and Google have launched their Exposure API, and now health authorities can release their apps. The first version of the Exposure API for contact tracing has been launched. The Exposure Notification System is designed to notify individuals if they have had potential exposure to others who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. It's designed to respect privacy, as it only gets notified of Bluetooth IDs, not names of individuals. IDs are uploaded to the server only if the owner of the phone is diagnosed, and then other phones that the owner's phone has been near are notified of the potential exposure. Artificial intelligence can diagnose COVID-19 from CT scans. Researchers at Mount Sinai are now able to use AI combined with imaging and clinical data to determine if you have COVID-19. They use CT scans of the chest along with symptoms, age, blood work, and possible contact with the virus to spot the disease. They found this to work well even in cases where there was no clear sign of any sort of lung disease on the CT scan. This is only an early proof of concept, however, but this does show the potential role AI could play in diagnosing and fighting COVID-19. The fastest internet ever recorded is in Australia. 44.2 terabits per second. That's what a team in Monash, Swinburne, and RMIT universities have recorded. And at this speed, you can download over 1,000 high-definition movies in less than a second. Researchers say they achieve this speed by using a device that replaces around 80 lasers in some existing telecoms hardware with a piece of equipment known as a microcomb. Professor David Moss of Swinburne University described this as an enormous breakthrough. This can transform many industries, especially as the pandemic causes many people to use the internet more for work, thus putting more strain on it. The microcombs will help with sending data instantly to other locations around the world. 
G2A's internal audit finds stolen game keys. The troubled website known for selling game keys, especially those which have been found to be stolen in the past, has found more stolen keys. In 2019, the company agreed to open transaction history up to an independent auditor. The company has since made offers to developers working with the independent auditor of up to 10 times the value if any stolen keys were found. Ultimately though, G2A ended up doing the audit themselves internally and discovered stolen keys. G2A sent a statement to Polygon, quote, we would be the first to admit that, in our formative years as a company, we took too long to realize that a small number of individuals were abusing our marketplace. However, the criticism we received was the wake-up call we needed, and over the last years, we have been totally committed to tackling any incidents of fraud on our site. Today, we use some of the most sophisticated proprietary anti-fraud AI technology of any online marketplace for our digital products." End quote. Doom Eternal is removing Denuvo anti-cheat. Last week, we shared that Doom Eternal had added Denuvo anti-cheat, but after backlash from fans, it is being removed. Executive producer Marty Stratton said, quote, Despite our best intentions, feedback from players has made it clear that we must reevaluate our approach to anti-cheat integration. With that, we will be removing the anti-cheat technology from the game in our next PC update." End quote. And finally, an ultra-thin sail could assist in space travel to other star systems. A cell made from the thinnest material known, one carbon atom thick graphene, has passed initial tests that show it can be viable for solar sails for spacecraft. Light sails have been one of the more promising proposed propulsion systems for space travel, as solar sails don't need any fuel. And because of that, these spacecraft would be lighter to launch. Solar sails have already been demonstrated on spacecraft, but they use polyamide and mylar, which are heavier. For testing, scientists used a scrap that was just 3 millimeters across and dropped it from a 100-meter tower in Bremen, Germany, to test if it worked under a vacuum and in microgravity. Once in freefall, laser lights were shown onto it to see if it could act as a solar sail. Shining a 1-watt laser on it caused it to move 1 meter per second squared, similar to that of an office lift, but for solar sails the acceleration continues as long as sunlight hits the sails. Scale Nanotech is now looking for strategic partners to scale up the technology for a test in space. And that's it for the news, and this has been Joey's Totally Tech. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I will catch you next time.